0: Working on the field is never easy and plagued with a multitude of challenges. For one, there are several stakeholders involved in conducting field experiments, and it is difficult not only to establish strong relationships with them, but also communicate the requirements of the study. Then there are bureaucratic hurdles that interfere with the research timelines. Moreover, the nature of survey questions may at times incentivize respondents to withhold information, thereby affecting the quality of data collected. Today we have with us Dr. Charity Troyer Moore, Director for South Asia Economics Research at Yale University's Macmillan Centre, who will talk about how she deals with such obstacles on the field through a conversation with Shambhavi Sahani, Research Associate at Inclusion Economics India Centre. Hello and welcome to the BTS of Economics Research, Season 1, a brand new podcast brought to you by Women in Econ and Policy. The idea of this podcast was born to launch a platform shedding light on the experiences of female development researchers. In every episode, we will pick a research study and unpack its learnings, challenges, and more through a conversation with one of the lead women principal investigators on the project. In this episode, We trace Dr. Moore's journey as a researcher so far and learn about her experiences in conducting fieldwork on gender-related issues in India. We also dive into her research paper titled On Her Own Account, How Strengthening Women's Financial Control Impacts Labor Supply and Gender Norms, co-authored with Erika Field, Rohini Pandey, Natalia Rigor, and Simone Shkana, to understand the challenges in carrying out field surveys. So without any further ado, let's get started with this episode.
1: So how did you start your journey as a development economist? And how did you get involved in fieldwork and specifically fieldwork in India?
2: Okay, all great questions. First of all, thanks for having me, Shamhavi. It's great to speak with you. Um, And it's kind of fun to have a conversation that's not entirely about work, right? So, um, but aligned adjacent to it. Um, So how did I get started as a development economist? And then how did I end up doing field work and field work in India? Um, My path was really a meandering one um, where I had no exposure to development economics or even to economics as a kid. Um, And in fact, uh, came from a family, were like, I think there were pretty clear expectations of what I should do. And the expectation was I would go to um, a particular college and study business. And I knew I was like, oh, that sounds okay, but not necessarily what I want to do. But the reason I decided business was fine was because I thought I know I want to do something hopefully international. And I had taken Spanish, um, like in high school and loved it. And was like, Oh, I really enjoy this. And so eventually ended up going to college and, um, studied business, but had always really loved math. So I was like, Oh, I can get an econ minor. So I did that. And I thought my econ classes were by far the most fascinating. Well, in my third year of my undergraduate studies, I went and studied abroad, uh, in Latin America. And that was kind of the beginning of things for me. So I got, I already had the bug. Like I knew I wanted to do something that was international and like leave Kind of the small town I was from and that very small world. And yeah, started getting into, um, the ideas related to like, this will show how old I am. Like when I was studying abroad, a lot of what we did was thinking through like policy and politics and so on in Latin America. And I was really struck by, um, the influence of like the world bank and the IMF and structural adjustment programs and all that. And so was a bit of a hippie type and thought, Oh gosh, like I want to help make the world a better place. And I don't think Mm -hmm. these institutions are doing a great job at that. And so, yeah, just that kind of began it for me. And, um, from there, you know, I graduated from college and decided, well, I really did like my econ classes. So let me continue my studies. Kind of honestly, stumbled into a PhD program. I had no idea if I wanted to do a PhD or a master's. I'd just never seen anyone doing research. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I went into my PhD program, I then, um, you know, sought out like internship opportunities, which is a dumb thing to do. You probably shouldn't do what I did, um, and ended up like working in Brazil and in Latin America again, um, working on social protection programs. And there I worked for, like during that time I worked for the World Bank and I worked for um, the UNDP and so on. But by the time I'd finished my PhD, I knew that I really wanted more experience doing applied microecon research, development research. Hadn't, I didn't feel like I had enough experience with it. I knew I wanted to live abroad, and I knew I wanted to remain connected to academia, but not into um, policy. And I thought there was like no job in the world that would allow me to do that because mm-hmm. I didn't actually want to go onto the academic job market. So I have kind of a pretty non-traditional path. I think the examples I had in graduate school were fine, but they were more, I mean, literally I had, you know, an advisor who said she was a, um, an armchair economist, meaning she's not gonna go do her own field work, um, mm-hmm. even though, she has, you know, very interesting work. So anyway, I graduated from school And since I'd worked for these multilaterals, I was thinking like, uh, I thought it was interesting what they did, but I felt in some ways, like I was a mouthpiece of particular, you know, points of view of the world. And I thought Mm -hmm. it was really important that we let data kind of guide what type of policy recommendations that are made. And I really wanted to continue to use my academic training because I loved getting my PhD and I loved reading papers and studying and so on. So eventually, um, you know, I just actually threw my name into like, a job pool, um, I think it was the j you know, broad application. And I think I applied to jobs in Latin America and got a call about a job at Harvard and said, I was not interested in it. And then um, the person at Harvard that was uh, recruiting me was like, well, but would you be interested in the position in India? Um, And I looked at the JD for the job and it was like, you get to do academic research, but the aim of the position is to connect the academic research to the questions that policymakers are asking. And I thought, wow, that's like exactly what I would like to do. I'd like to be at the nexus." of research and policy. And so uh, at that point in time, I said, yeah, I'll do right. it. And so sight unseen, I'd actually never been to India. I'd been to Bangladesh, but mm-hmm. um, we sold everything. I actually had two little kids and um, oh, we wow. moved <laughs> to Delhi. Yeah. And ended up living there for three years. And so that was, you know, I'd done like some, what you would call field work um, in my work with the UNDP and the World Bank, um, mm-hmm. but not not like academic research. Um, Um, And so that was actually my first foray into like actually doing academic applied development research uh, is when I went to India about 10 years ago now, so.
1: So um, it definitely seems like you had a very interesting and adventurous um, grad school set of years. What were your say first impressions um, or the differences that you noticed between sort of the policy environment in um, Latin America and South America um, and in India and
2: Bangladesh? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, I'll tell you first what the commonality was um, and th- what I thought the common thread was, and then I'll tell you what struck me as most different. So the, the common thread that I saw running through everything, and this was kind of my bugaboo by the time I was done working in Latin America, was that, and I'd done some work, um, more like desk-based research, but, you know, like walked away with the same conclusions on some things in sub-Saharan Africa, linked to cash transfer programs, was that government was setting up these, you know great policies um, and lots of people like technocrats were thinking through you know the design of programs targeting you know how these systems were supposed to function and they had these very detailed plans but when you actually went to see how they worked it was quite different um, And so one example I have is I was working in Honduras mm-hmm. um, this was for the UNDP for a place in Brazil called the International. Poverty Center, and um, I was trying to understand how um, Honduras' CCT program known as PRAF uh, was functioning. And so I got to know some of the PRAF staff and they said, let's go out and you can actually watch the cash transfers being distributed. So we drove out to this rural village and I was just supposed to be this observer. And this is not at all best practice, but we get out there and we have see like hundreds of people lined up to get cash. And I realized there are only like five people here to do this cash distribution. This is like a total wreck. No one knows like who's doing what and all this. So, you know, before long, I was actually helping them distribute the cash because they just needed like extra people to -hmm. do the work. Um, And so that, you know, like that sort of thing was really striking to me to see like, okay, on paper, this, this program is supposedly great. Like it's having these international evaluations being done. Everyone's talking about the impact, but when it comes to like actually even delivering the cash, that's just such a massive undertaking that, you know, the government employees themselves are like so strapped. It's very difficult to even do that. Right. So this, and I think that was something that, and you know, I saw in common once I got to India and started working on gender-focused research and also governance-focused research, where you know we would see something on paper, and you know, a central or state government official would say, um, "Yeah, go see this program. We have this, you know, great thing that we're doing for these individuals," and you know, and you'd go out to the field to see something, and it's like no one even knows the program exists, or you know, there's this massive corrupt system that Mm -hmm. is kind of exploiting you know, left and right. So, you know, all these types of things. So the common thread was this issue related to implementation. It was just, you know, the policies that are written down struggled, you know, when it comes to like actually being implemented well. Um, and so like one in line of my research really does try to focus on how do we support the state to effectively deliver the services that they aim to deliver. And I think that's a very important piece of kind of the state um, and citizen, the social contract really, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and developing some sort of, um, you know, depend not dependence, but uh, trust in in the fact that the state can can function on your behalf. The things that were different though, I think it- Said, two major things struck me as quite different. One was the extent to which India is very hierarchical. I wouldn't say that's different from Bangladesh. Uh, it's quite different from Latin America. I think in Latin America, if someone disagrees with you, there's definitely a hierarchy, but people seem more willing to like speak their mind. Whereas in India, I think people tend to defer to the hierarchy, even if they see, say, the person that maybe is their supervisor, or several levels above them, has no idea what they're talking about. They can... Mm-hmm. Tend to be kind of, yes, men and women, and just go along with things. Um, so that's one thing that I've seen just overall. The other thing that absolutely struck me when I hit India was the extent to which gender is such an important issue. Um, I mean, I think, you know, women's economic empowerment is an important issue everywhere in Latin America. It was, you know, always an issue in the sense that, like, there was uh, domestic violence, at least, you know, from my anecdotal experience, was, was pretty prevalent. But women were more active economically. You know, when I moved to Delhi, I remember I had this experience. Um, I came up from the metro right next to our office, which um, I think you would know they're in Green Park. And it was walking home. And it was like seven at night. I'd come back from a meeting with the ministry rural development and all of a sudden I looked around and I realized there are no women out on the street like besides me what's going on here like it, it somehow took me I think a month or two to even realize this was happening and so I started counting um I would count like how many men do I see before I see a woman and my ratio in that part of Delhi you know once it got dark at night was 19 men to one woman woman and um it, it's just that was just so striking to me it felt like I was like more vulnerable because why am I out and it's like well why should I why should it be a problem that I'm out late at you know not even late at 7 p.m. at night, um, and this was like uh, just a year or two after the Nirala stuff happened. Um, so um, or, I'm saying that wrong. Nirvana um, related to the the gang rape in Delhi and all that. So you know there was a sense of vulnerability there that um, wow, this is you know really different from what I've seen. And then I started kind of putting. The pieces together a little bit more and understanding the data on, you know, just like female labor force participation in India and understanding that particularly in rural areas, it's declined a lot um, over the past you know 20 years or so. And realizing that, you know, there is a connection between women's economic opportunities and what they're doing economically in their role in the household and their role in society. And that to me was like an alarm. Um, and, you know, I had already come knowing that I was interested in gender issues and was working on this study in Maja. Pradesh, but from there decided like I definitely want to focus on this this issue of women and their economic activity because this seems to be so important to India's future and to the well being of women, but also you know households and states and and the entire Indian society. So, mm-hmm. so that seems those are the two big differences, I would say.
1: Oh, that's great, and that's also a really good segue. So, um, just talking a little bit about. Um, your research project in Madhya Pradesh um, and the paper that sort of comes along with it on her own account how strengthening women's financial control affects labor supply and gender norms if you could just introduce that research uh, paper to us and sort of what you know how did you begin thinking about this research question what was it that you were trying to answer
2: well, and I'll give all credit to my co-investigators who actually started the study before I ever even arrived in India. They were just getting it off the ground. The study arose, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to kind of get to tag along and be a part of this and, and you know, very intimately involved in the day-to-day, you know, for two, two and a half years of, of the work and then the paper later on, which was great. It was a lot of fun. Um, so the the study arose because um, some of my co-investigators, so Rahini Pandey and I think Erica Field, at that point in time, were in Madhya Pradesh, and they were um, meeting with, well, they, Rahini had had some meetings with the Ministry of Rural Development, and the minister at the time, Jairam Ramesh, was very excited about the idea of making sure that Narega was a female-friendly venture, um, and I would think probably most of the listeners uh, to this podcast would know, but Narega is this, uh, you know, workfare program in India that provides up to 100 days of, um, you know, low-skilled work for rural laborers, if they um, so desire to seek that out, right? Mm-hmm. And so, Jairam mesh was very interested in trying to find ways that Norega could become more female-friendly, and um, I think must have pointed, I actually don't know exactly how the conversation took place, but must have pointed Rohini um, and Erica to uh, the, um, oh my goodness, Aruna Sharma, who was the head of um, the Panchati Raj Rural Development Department in Madhya Pradesh at that point in time. And Mrs. Sharma had undertaken this expansive effort to try to increase financial inclusion across the state of Madhya Pradesh and the whole idea was and this is very much in line with a lot of the different financial inclusion initiatives um, that were happening at that point in time but in these rural areas essentially the state mapped out all the panchayats and determined which of them were considered like shadow banking areas meaning they didn't have access to a local banking kiosk within five kilometers Mm -hmm. and so she decided that she was going to set up banking kiosks they like supported I think they even funded the space and then you know gave the mandate to banks um, lead banks in these areas to set up banking kiosks in all the shadow areas. And so um, Rohini and Erica had done um, some previous research related to financial inclusion. This was like very much up up their alley, right? Um, So they wanted to go to MP and kind of understand um, this program. And then at the same time, you know, Mr. Ramesh was talking about ways to make Norega more female-friendly. And one thing that came to light was that women uh, who worked for Norega, rather than being paid into their own bank accounts, were actually paid into a household-held bank account. So that would typically be the bank account that the, the male head of the household had. So like the household would have one bank account. Anyone who worked for their wages would just get paid into this account. And the government was really pushing for direct benefit transfers and that sort of thing. So when they went to Madhya Pradesh, uh, Mrs. Sharma was definitely on board with the idea that um, we could expand banking access to women. And um, we wanted to understand what is the impact of transitioning women from um, you know not having any bank accounts to um, having a bank account. And then actually getting their narega wages uh, directed straight into that account. Now we had lots of ideas at that point in time about like what the study should look like, and I think one thing I've learned about research is you know things kind of change over time a bit. Um, so mm-hmm. some of our initial ideas actually never even um, got off the ground. But ultimately, what we did was we ran um, an RCT in four districts in the northern parts of the state uh, across 197 gram panchayats, uh, and we cross randomized a variety of treatments. So we had kind of this pure control arm where we did nothing, and then there was this uh, group of uh, panchayats where we just opened bank accounts for women. So now they would have bank accounts, and they were at this local banking kiosk. So that's great. Then um, in another treatment arm, we opened the bank accounts, and then we linked women's bank accounts to their Narega wages. So in this case, you know, if they worked for Narega, rather than having the wages go into their husband's bank account, it would be directed to their own bank account. And then uh, a little bit later on, we realized um, this is a great intervention, but no one under understands fully how to use their accounts and so on. So we layered on a cross randomized training. And so we had kind of four cells of different types of treatment. And this was like a group-based training where women came to their panchayat and they learned about how to access their bank accounts at the kiosk, who the kiosk operator is, you know, all these types of things. Um, And so ultimately we collected um, data about a year after we had finally rolled all this out. And speaking of implementation, it was quite difficult to actually implement that intervention. We were opening bank accounts for women and many of them did not have like documentation. Um, Linking their bank accounts to their narega wages was actually quite a difficult thing to do, and we had issues with you know local leaders trying to get the accounts delinked and all that sort of thing. So we ran into lots of interesting challenges. Um, but after we'd fully opened the accounts and made sure that the women's wages were transitioned into those accounts for the treatment arms where that applied, we collected midline data. And then about a year and a half later, we uh, collected endline data as well. So kind of the high-level takeaways from the study are really focused on this comparison of women for which we open bank accounts, sent the wages into their accounts and did this training for women. So it's like our most intensive treatment arm. And we actually ended up co- primarily comparing them to women that we just opened bank accounts for. But most of what I say applies to like the pure control as well. Part of the reason is because again, you can't predict everything that happens prior to your work and essentially PMJDY came in after that, even mm-hmm. in control areas and women got bank accounts. So it just kind of changed what the baseline was that we were looking at. But what we found is, you know, these women that we had this most intensive um, treatment for, you know, they, they were more financially included and had like higher measures of financial empowerment, which is great. That's what we were expecting. Um, and then what we saw is these women worked more, but they didn't just work more in Norega. They also worked more in the private sector. And that was a bit of a puzzle for us because we thought, you know, it, it, you know, standard economic models would suggest that maybe they might work more for Norega if it's more rem- remunerative, right, and they were receiving a higher um, cut of their wages, um, but there, it was interesting that they actually were working more in the private sector, and so to unpack that a little bit more, we collected um, data in our end line in particular related to the reasons that women weren't working and really tried to unpack that, and I think, you know, the main story that we came away with and, we're, um, you know, think really applies to the situation is in this case, um, you know, women actually wanted to work outside of their homes uh, for a wage more than, their husbands wanted them to in many cases. And we see effects concentrated um, in this paper among women who we considered socially constrained. So these were women who had not been working outside of their home for Norega um, before our intervention began. And we see that these women are working more later on. Um, but we also see movement um, related to social norms. And we think that this happens because, um, you know, women essentially through Norega, through getting their wages to be transferred into their own accounts instead of their husbands, accounts, they essentially had an increase in their inter-household bargaining power, right? And mm-hmm. since they wanted to go outside the home and work more than their husbands wanted them to work, now with this increased bargaining power, they could actually exercise that and go work in the private sector, not just work for Norega. Um, and so, as a result, they worked more in the private sector, they earned more money, this persisted through the long-run follow-up that we did, and you know, to really understand this better, we dove into this issue of social norms and found that, um, interestingly enough, that norms also kind of evolved around women in work. And these women who were in this most intensive treatment arm were also more likely to say um, that they thought it was appropriate for women to work outside the household um, Mm -hmm. after this intervention. And we see, you know, like suggestive movement in their husband's views of whether it's appropriate for women to work outside the household as well. And I'll say, um, you know, we're talking about this on her own account, but there's another accompanying paper, which honestly I find uh, just as fascinating, or I think just as interesting as this main paper. It's in Uh, the AEA Papers and Proceedings, and it talks about what we learned about the constraints to women working and the norms against them and how husbands and wives feel about women working and, you know, their own views and also their perceptions of what other people think about um, women working and whether husbands and wives understand or have misunderstanding or misreports about, you know, what they think their spouse thinks. And we found a lot of spousal discordance, meaning, you know, I think my husband thinks I shouldn't work and so I'm not working, but he seems to think that totally fine if I'm working and somehow we disagree on what his opinion is in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually does you know, correlate with what we see of, of women's labor force activity. So I think like the policy takeaway from the paper is that, um, you know, these interventions that actually increase women's bargaining power in the household through kind of increasing her potential, um, you know, essentially what we considered like a, an outside option, an outside wage option that she could get um, even if the household were to dissolve. Um, that can have implications for women's well-being beyond kind of you know, programmatic benefits, right? So we saw that um, you know increased women's economic empowerment more broadly, and then also changed these views related to women in work and changed women's aspirations um, for their daughters, um, their views of what's appropriate, all these types of things, and increased some measures of economic agency. Um, so that was really exciting in the sense that I think we were working in a very, very conservative environment, um, and gender norms were very Restrictive, and so we thought there was no way that any sort of policy could change views on women in work in such a short period of time. But we actually saw an evolution over a three-year period that really liberalized, you know, what women were allowed to do, you know, outside of their households. Which, in this context, was extremely exciting.
1: This is definitely very interesting, and especially because. Um, you said that it was a very conservative environment that you worked in, um, and it definitely seems like sort of the the confluence of the Narega front um, of the policy space in Madhya Pradesh at that time, and also the financial inclusion initiatives that were being taken up at that time um, in that space uh, definitely came together pretty well um, for this project, but also um, in terms of sort of like policy impact, um, I guess just taking a step back and thinking about, um, field work in particular, and you said that it was definitely challenging because of, um, the many different treatment arms that were, um, ongoing at, at once, what was sort of the, the policy engagement like with, uh, the different partners that you were working with in the field and, um who were the main players essentially that you had to get on board before um, you could pilot some of this stuff?
2: Yeah, there was a lot of um, onboarding for sure with potential partners. Uh, so we worked really closely with the state. You know, I was meeting with the Norega commissioner probably at least once a month in Bhopal. Um, and we also had the buy-in of the central government. And I was actually, because I was based in Delhi, I, was, um, I met with the secretary of rural development, um, or sorry, the uh, JS for Norega. Um, you know, on a weekly basis, actually, Um, not always about MP and the work that we were doing there, but more broadly related to Norega, I think, you know, we built a strong relationship and he was just absolutely great to work with. So we worked with him on a variety of different things, but on the ground, because we were working with banking kiosks, we had to onboard the banks that we were working with. And that involved, um, you know, meeting people in the districts we were working in, meeting people in Bhopal, um, you know, at the state level, and then even going, um, I think some, yeah, we went to Mumbai um, several times to meet bank leadership as well to make sure they were on board and supportive of all this. In the background, we would meet with RBI occasionally um, to try to uh, share more about what we were doing and um, you know understand how what we were doing could potentially feed into some of the financial inclusion initiatives that they had in place. So there was a lot related to stakeholder engagement.
1: Okay. And What part of the stakeholder um, engagement was most challenging for you um, as a researcher and sort of as a PI on the project? What was sort of your major concern um, with respect to policy engagement and um, onboarding all of these people?
2: I mean, it was a huge amount of work, right? Because there are lots of relationships that had to be built and um, people get transferred relatively frequently. So you had to have touch points both with the person at the right position and level that you needed to engage, but also the people lower down, right? Who were actually going to do the things that you needed them to do. So. Um, as an example, and it just took lots of work. So one example would be, I know we were um, talking with the state at one point about data that they had, and they said, they'd be happy to share some of that with us, you know, just run down the hall or um, go to visit this individual at the, you know, one uh, government building, and he's going to be able to help you. Well, I showed up at this official's office and it was clear right from the outset, he had no interest whatsoever in being involved in this study and helping. Um, But I was bound to determine that, You know, the state has said we can get this data. Um, I know it's a real pain for you but I'm gonna sit here until we get this data. And I remember I sat the whole day, uh, we had a little bit of a standoff of sorts. This is not what I would recommend for other people to do, but um, the point was, you know, I had to persevere. And I continued, I sat there, and I think by the end of the day, I finally walked away with the data that we needed. Um, I, I remember at one point, uh, this guy like had a stenographer, he um, did not actually use a computer himself. Um, and so I was trying to think through, what can we do to actually help him? Is there something I can Offered to do. And I think I did offer to, you know, do anything that they needed aside from like actually passing over the data to us, um, to be helpful on that front and ultimately got it. Um, we sat and had, uh, you know, more broadly, we sat and had Chai and made presentations, um, you know, to people at all levels. And, you know, I remember, it, very regularly going in to visit um, kind of like the district lead banker, building a relationship with him, WhatsApp and texting to say hello and so on. Um, You know, as a foreigner, this was challenging. I I was learning Hindi and, uh, you know, you could get into situations, particularly, you know, when you leave the central government where everyone's speaking Hindi and you just have to absorb and figure out what's going on. And, and you realize, you know, you're also maybe not, the insider. And that can sometimes work, you know, in an advantageous way. And sometimes it can be really difficult because people can kind of try to keep you out. So I think it was a matter really of thinking about, okay, you know, I have some research objectives, but I also have policy objectives, right? I want to be able to do something good with this research. What is it that this person wants to do that's incentive aligned with what I want to do? And how can we build on that, that point of collaboration um, or that potential point where we can collaborate and help you know, how can I help them see that we have shared interests? And I think that's kind of the point that I would work from to try to, uh, you know, get sign off for letters and, um, you know, data and approval to do lots of different things. You know, we even were going into block offices and sitting with, um, I think it was the block, they didn't have MAS officers, but anyway, the individuals that would do the linking of Norega accounts, we had to, uh, you know, work with each block and district office and multiple times and ultimately had someone sitting in the block office working with them to support, you know, this intervention. But it really was, you know, what do we need to do to get this done? And uh, we were kind of willing to do whatever it took. It was, it was definitely not easy at times.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I actually find that very interesting. And um, also you, I know now that you speak very good Hindi, uh, from uh, just the scoping visits that um, I've accompanied you on in India. But um, I I feel like you have a very unique sort of insight into field work in India, not only because um, you've lived here, but also because now you um, speak the language and you have a, a very good understanding of what... Um, The concerns might be um, from government officials, whether it be with respect to handing over data or just generally, you know, talking about the work they do. Um, How have your sort of experiences shaped not only your sort of expectations of fieldwork in India, but also when we think about um, RAs and other people that are essentially um, in the field, continuing some of these relationships that you've already built? And um, you know, taking forward projects in the field. Um, what are your sort of expectations from RAs and other field teams, knowing the challenges and knowing um, how some of these these uh, interactions with officials
2: um, pan out? Yeah. Well, um, there are lots of potential like potholes, right? When you're interacting, say, with government officials, one is that they suck you into doing their, you know, whatever it is that they want done. And, uh, you know, so they're trying to use you and your time. And I know that's something that, um, you know, RAs can definitely get pulled into really easily, like, oh, we'll do this for you, but we just need you to do this for us. And all of a sudden, um, you know, I, this happened with the an RA who's now a PhD student, you know, I realized, wait a second, are you actually just working for the district government now? And we would joke with him about this, like you've been totally co-opted and, uh, you know, <laughs> you are now a district employee and, you know, he would laugh about it, but I think that was like a real danger and something that he was always trying to to balance as well. Um, cause people were always trying to get him to do uh, things for them. Um, although I think I've, you know, done a bit of the same. I think the other thing to think about is, um, you know, I, I recognize that the position that I had, and by the way, my Hindi's horrible and it's embarrassing. So I appreciate you saying that, but it's very generous. Um, but you know, I, in some ways, like I said, being an outsider was advantageous because you you seem like you know you're noticed and maybe people take you seriously. Um, but there are also times where people don't take you seriously at all. And I think based on those types of experiences, I recognize that like maybe sending someone who's early in their career into a senior government official one, it's super intimidating, right? Mm-hmm. And two, they may or may not be taken seriously, even if this was like a very Thoughtful, articulate person. Um, you know, it's it's hard sometimes to get the time of day and uh, to get the attention that you need for a particular study. So I try to keep that sort of thing in mind um, when working with our staff because you know I know it's like maybe I've had an advantage, um, and so it's it's you know easier said than done sometimes. Like go into this office and make sure this happens. Um, But so that can be kind of tricky. I think the thing we ask for from the staff is um, let us know what's happening. Right. So be honest about it. So this is where some of the hierarchy comes in. It's like if it's not working out and we're giving you totally horrible suggestions, I would hope that our staff feel like they can say "Mm, we really think that's not a good idea. And here's why, Um, even though there is that hierarchy. And I think academia tends to have a lot of hierarchy as well for better or for worse. Um, But I think, yeah, I. What I've learned is you should trust people who are on the ground um, and they're dealing with things firsthand that when you're farther away, it's very hard to understand exactly what's going on. And so having a good deal of trust in the people that are doing that work and respect for the fact that like they're working very hard, I think is that's at least a motivating principle that I try to abide by in the day-to-day and I hope is helpful to our team relationships.
1: Mm-hmm what would be sort of your key advice that you would want to give to um, RAs on the field and also um, people who are leading um, RAs on the field or maybe, um, you know, other sort of research managers or um, other projects that have their teams um, doing sort of fieldwork and especially in remote um, sort of locations in rural India, what would sort of your... um, take away be for for those people?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I would say to the extent that you can immerse yourself. um, And I guess this comes from, you know, the different experiences that I've had. When you're halfway into a field experience, but really your head's in Delhi or it's in another country or it's thinking in a different language, um, than what people around you are speaking, you miss out a lot on on what's really, really happening. So I think the more you can immerse yourself in the situation that, you know, say your respondents are dealing with, um, mm-hmm. the better. Now obviously you need to have like boundaries and and all this sort of thing. I'm not saying that you don't want to do that, but um, I'm just reading Mr. Um, Sharon's book uh, called uh, Last Among Equals. It's about his experience in Bihar. And, you know, he starts off talking about um, working with Sanjay Sahani, um, who's, you know, this Narega activist. And he he explains, you know, going to the field, you know, we call it the field. It's people's homes, right? <laughs> it's villages. Um, with Sanjay and, and understanding and observing like Sabha's that were happening. And, and you can tell like that was such a formative experience for him to just be willing to throw himself into understanding what is it like to be a person here who would be on the other side of a survey, right? And what is their experience? What is their lived experience like, like? I think that's so important to really doing research well. Um, I think the other bit of advice I would have, um, comes from, and I will use the analogy I gave when I moved to India, I felt like I was drinking out of a fire hydrant for like a year and a half, meaning there was so much to learn. Mm -hmm. There was so much to absorb, but you know, be open to those experiences. I think sometimes we, we often think like, oh, you know, like maybe I don't understand these things. Am I not good enough? Do I need to study something? Blah, blah, blah. Or did other people realize I didn't understand this? Or, you know, why didn't, you know, these types of questions, especially when you're in like an academic setting, I think the best attitude to have is I'm here to learn and I'm here to grow. And I can't wait to do that. And so the more we take on that attitude and that appetite and that curiosity comes out, uh, you know, I think the better things go for us. So that could pertain to the academic side of the research, but it could also pertain to field management and budget, you know, understanding and working with donors. So, you know, I think a key principle is always observe everyone around you and learn from the best, right. Mm -hmm. And continue to find ways to, to grow and to learn and develop. And, you know, if you do that, you know, it's a lot of fun, right?
1: Yeah, no, that definitely sounds like great advice. Um, and I think, um, a lot of um, the RAs that I also work with currently at Inclusion Economics, we do um, try and do the same thing as much as possible. Immerse ourselves, um, try and understand um, the the people that we're around, and try and understand their problems, and try and think about how we can sort of um, work towards um, with us with, let's say, with our study, but also um, within the organization. What can we bring back to the PIs or other researchers that we learn about that might, um, you know, help the people that we're with, but also um, allow us to do good research and collect good data. Mm-hmm. And um, just sort of one last question about your the the paper that we were talking about and that, and this particular project. Um, what what would be something that you would do differently if you were doing Um, a similar project um, again, let's say in Madhya Pradesh or somewhere else. And is there something unique about um, the experiences you had um, on the field or with this project that has stayed with you?
2: What would I do differently? I think probably I would have, so the study started in a real rush. Um, and as a result, I think some of the systems that we needed in place were not in place. So what I would do differently is set those systems up ahead of time. Which some of you, you know, we're like real sticklers for systems at this point. I think it's we've been burned. We've learned our lessons, and we've gone back and been like, "How did we actually do this?" Or yeah, and even in like the implementation and the day to day, you know. Um, it just different things, mishaps happen. It's like, okay, if we would have planned ahead, this this could have been avoided altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. Um, and sorry, what was the second question that you asked?
1: Is there something unique um, about this particular project or the experiences that you had that have sort of stayed with you um, as you continue to do more and more research in India?
2: Yeah, definitely. So um, one thing that sticks out is um, you don't necessarily know what the data is going to tell you just by anecdotal experience, because um, sometimes it feels like you know exactly what the result of the intervention is going to be when you go and you talk to a few people. And I think we, um, having worked in this part of northern MP, I mean, it was so conservative. Women's mobility in particular was so restricted. We did like focus groups and we're just trying to understand what life was like for women and they just spoke so openly about abuse and violence and this sort of thing. And this was like even after our intervention. And so I think we walked away feeling like, the environment is so constraining for women, and the mindsets that they have are just like so immersed in this idea that they're inferior. There's surely nothing could affect it, and yet when we looked at the data, it was abundantly clear that the intervention had actually, you know, changed views on um, women and work in particular. And so I think that was so exciting to see. And I, you know, we had walked away from field visits kind of pessimistic about our ability to affect any sort of change. Um, given Given the conservative views that were so prevalent among both women and men. Um, Yeah, so I think that's one thing I've learned is, you know, you can go have field visits and feel like, oh, this intervention may not be doing what I hoped it would, or this intervention is working, but in the end, you got to go to the data. Because
1: what sort of change have you seen in how this topic is being researched um, over the years, just when we think about women's labor force participation?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I feel like sometimes I'm a little bit sad about the research about female labor force participation in India because it, and you know, I'm not the only one who said this. I I agree and I've I've heard other people say kind of voice similar sentiments and it's that um we tend to circle around and around the same set of issues and we know at this point, the reasons that women are not in the labor force um, and the challenges to that. And so really what's needed is, you know, some things to jumpstart some of the underlying challenges that are keeping women out, right? Um, and I will say, I think, you know, research has, you know, and maybe this is my own bias, cause this is kind of where we landed with some of the, the work that we did in MP, you know, Increasingly pointed to um, some of the supply side issues, like and, and issues around norms um, and whether it's considered appropriate or not. I mean, there's a really interesting paper that uh, Farzana Afridi and I think Kanika um, Mahajan have related to, uh, you know, like the returns to the marriage market rather than the labor market. Um, mm-hmm when women are more highly educated these days. Uh, and it all kind of goes back to this idea that like women are prepared for marriage, right? They're not prepared for the labor market, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as a whole in India. Like if you want to invest in your daughter, you're investing in her because she needs to um, find a good partner. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think that's something that's come out maybe more recently in some of the um, research on it. But I do think, uh, you know, my view overall, um, having looked at this sum, is that, you know, there are these supply side issues, supply side issues, there are norms related issues, but the real issue, from my perspective, um, in India related to female labor force participation, uh, maybe not the real issue. The only way to solve this issue really is jobs. Access to economic opportunities, and that's what's really lacking um, for women, and you know, overall in India. So this this gender issue, in a lot of ways, is a jobs issue or an issue related to to economic opportunities.
1: What advice would you give to say someone who um, researching financial inclusion in a developing context?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it, the some of the newer research does get into some of the gender as well. The, this happened all along, uh, gender focus of these things. And some of it does get into norms and intra-household sharing and and that sort of thing. I also think some of the newer research quite fortunately is more nuanced. It's less about financial access and more about what that actually means, Mm -hmm. um, for people who, who have access to products. Of course, there's this whole new strand of research that's really focusing on consumer protection and, uh, you know, the ways that people, you know, millions of people over the past, 10 years in particular, hundreds of millions of people have come into the formal financial system for the first time. What does this actually mean in terms of their ability to protect themselves financially and the potential for exploitation, particularly since the type of person who's now coming into the formal financial system often is more vulnerable than uh, you know the people that were coming on in the past. So that seems like an important you know, source or line of like inquiry as well. I think the other thing is like financial inclusion to what end, right? Is financial inclusion truly an end in and of itself or are there broader objectives for, uh, you know, trying to help people facilitate formal means of accessing finance and credit and, you know, storing um, savings and that type of thing. And I think that, that to me has always been kind of the bigger question. I, you know, I think it's kind of similar to me in some ways, like the um, question on around women and their mobile phone access, right? So, mm-hmm. there's this gender gap in mobile phone access in India and in lots of places in the world. and uh, Not all places, in some places, women are actually more likely uh, to have a phone than a man. But, you know, a lot of donors, you know, they want to close this gap because they think that access to mobile phones is going to um, be very important to access jobs, information, finance, like all these types of things. Um, so, in I think the answer to that question is yes. If if mobile phones are important to that, then yes, we should definitely close that gap. But closing the gap alone is not necessarily sufficient to actually empowering women. Say, um, you know, it's it may be how women are actually able to use the phone and so on. So I just think you know, thinking through those broader outcomes, what is it we're really trying to move uh, and to improve for women, or just more generally for people who access finance? That's an important thing to be thinking through always in the research.
1: Or is there something that um, researchers and um, say donors should also be aware of when we try to collect this kind of data for the first time in the field.
2: Yeah. Well, if I take, uh, you know, two areas that I think are interesting, one is related to, uh, you know, maybe norms around financial access or even gender norms as they relate to financial inclusion or financial uh, usage um, and this issue of exploitation. Right. Both of those things are really difficult to quantify, in part because it's very hard or um, not in someone's best interest to want to articulate maybe their particular views on uh, you know, like a social issue or say you're, you know, some sort of banking kiosk operator and you're overcharging someone, you're not going to want to tell anyone (laughs) that you're doing this right. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, Uh, although we've, we've also spoke with some very forthright corrupt individuals in the past, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, so I think it's exciting in the sense that this is an opportunity to develop some Mm -hmm. new approaches to understand some of these challenges to say financial inclusion, Um, by, you know, and I think with the work that we did in Madhya Pradesh, um, one of my colleagues, Natalia Riegel, uh spent a huge amount of time developing and piloting norms-related questions that included, uh, you know, direct questions, but also vignettes, um, trying to understand, you know, one's own views versus other people's views and the extent to which other people's views even matter to you. And so there are many, many interesting questions that have come out of that sort of thing, like, you know, whose views matter to, to me in terms of what I think is normal and good in the world, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm a rural woman in India, am I thinking about my mother-in-law? Am I thinking about what my husband thinks? Am I thinking about other people from my caste? Or is it something different? So there are lots of interesting questions related to that type of topic that need to be understood better. Um, and then with this issue of corruption and exploitation, you know, I think I have a little bit of experience with this because I've worked, you know, at this cusp of, or, you know, at the along the lines of governance as well, and, you know, talked with... many individuals who probably are doing things, you know, that include rent extraction and graft and all that sort of thing, and definitely don't want researchers to know about it. Um, And so then we come to this place where we need to think through what are ways that we can see and understand the extent to which, you know, exploitation is occurring in a revealed preference way. So, you know, and I think the study, when the studies we're working on, some of you know, this is, uh, you know, we're thinking about how can we use like mystery shoppers to go and... And um, understand if people of different types of people, um, whether it's by gender or maybe even other dimensions, are being treated differently by a kiosk operator in terms of like fees that are being charged and that sort of thing. So those types of um, field interactions, I think, are super interesting and kind of at the frontier and will help us really begin to understand how to ask and measure these types of uh, concepts that we think are, are really important.
1: Mhm. That sounds very exciting. Um, you know, like the mystery shopper, I know we've we've talked about it in our own team meetings, but also I just feel like there are so so many innovations, um, and even even in terms of just technology and so many other sort of creative ways of trying to collect um certain data. Um, what do you See sort as the future of um, field research, and what are you most excited about? Oh gosh,
2: well I, I do think uh, a lot of new applied research does interesting work. I think I'm most excited about work that I see that brings together like innovative approaches to collect data on topics that are difficult to measure and then links it back to kind of economic models of how the world works. Um, So I am one of those people that think that, you know, I'm not a theorist in any way, but I do think theory is really important to like framing how we view the world and interpreting how we view the world. Um, and I think it's really fun uh, to do, you know, in, in in the few minutes that I get occasionally to take a look at models and stuff. Um, so I think the most exciting work really does kind of try to bring all those different strands together to answer kind of big picture questions framed around, you know, principles of how the world works, but then uses innovative data collection methods. So <clears throat> You know, and that can range from lab in the field to things like mystery shoppers to administrative data to, um, you know, one example we have from another um, study I work on. We use information, what we call data exhaust from a government program. So that's essentially like timestamps of when people are actually logging into government systems to do things rather than having that, you know, a system that logs, yes, you know, someone checks, yes, this is done, we're getting like the metadata that, Mm -hmm. that confirms that something is done rather than somebody saying, I actually did that myself, right? Um, Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. So every time they're logging in and taking a step, that's the data that we're collecting. And we also get to collect information from like how they're using, you know, particular websites and apps that we've set up and all that type of thing. So I think kind of bringing together all these different types of information uh, to try to paint a coherent picture of what's happening um, on the ground is super exciting.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know we touched upon this a little bit before, but what do you see as the frontier of gender and policy research today? And... um, Where do you feel like sort of the market for this type of research is saturated already?
2: Yeah, well, I definitely think the "why aren't women working?" um, question is like pretty well, like pretty well hashed out. I think unless you uh, want or you can say something about how to address the issue, that's like where I think there's value in the research as well. I think the questions related to norms and unpacking and understanding that a little bit better and how that relates to interhousehold bargaining is also a super interesting um, area of research. Um, Yeah, I, I, I do think when it comes to women's labor force participation in India, you know, we have a good sense of what's it's not that there's nothing else that can be said on it. I think there are still things that can be said on it, but there are lots of papers that look at secondary data and kind of say largely the same things. So Mm -hmm. I would not encourage someone to, to write another one of those papers. I've written one of those myself. So, um, you know, it was a useful exercise to kind of understand the situation. Um, but beyond that, I think, you know, it's, it's valuable to start testing solutions. I think the most interesting stuff is on the supply side, but, um, probably the most impactful Mm -hmm. stuff would be on more on the demand side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finding ways to like really draw women into the labor force. And, and maybe some of this goes back to this question of to what extent can the state intervene to change this? I think, you know, the government has invested in this massive NRLM infrastructure, right, mm-hmm. where women have formed these credit collectives. And now the big question is, how do we link them to the economy? And so I think if anyone, you know, outside of the private sector is going to be able to do this, it's obviously the state. Um and so, you know, one big question I have is, can the state do this successfully? Can they really generate economic opportunities that um, have multiplier effects and can, can do more than, you know, kind of marginal movements here and there? Because I think what India needs is more than margin. Uh, they need something pretty, pretty significant. You know, places like Vietnam and, and China and Bangladesh, you know, they had that private sector engagement that really um, was important for women and for their labor force participation. And then, you know, their broader outcomes as well. And India just hasn't had that. Um, And, you know, segment or sectors like the garment sector have, you know, grown, but they still just are nothing compared to what, you know, some of the East Asian Mm -hmm. countries and and I guess Bangladesh as well has been able to achieve. And so I guess the question is absent that sort of Uh, you know, private sector movement, you know, what's going to happen to actually turn the situation around for Indian women, it's probably going to come from a group like NRLM.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, given everything you just said, what would your dream sort of research project look like if you uh, would like to divulge, but also just in terms of thinking about how you might want to set up Um, a project that might answer some of these questions. Um, What would you, or yeah, what would your sort of dream um, field exercise or research question um, entail?
2: Yeah, I don't, I think I have some general ideas um, and topics. I unfortunately have had so little time to think about this recently, but Mm -hmm. um, I have a whole list and pages and pages of these ideas that I always get when I'm in the field, so that's where it all comes from. Um, but, or when I'm reading, you know, the literature, but I'd say there are kind of several buckets. So one relates to really unpacking. So I said that there are lots of papers on female labor force participation. So it's going to sound like I'm contradicting, but I'm not, um, really unpacking the, um, the importance of the different constraints on the supply side for women's labor force participation, meaning, um, you know, if we could disentangle mobility from unpaid care issues, from household resistance, um, you know, all that type of thing and and, understand these norms, internalized norms, if we could find ways to unpack that. And that's actually one set of studies that we're talking about doing and in the work that you're doing, um, actually, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be again, a study that begins to start unpacking that, um, that would be exciting. I think the other side is thinking through exactly what I was saying is, are there ways that we can use these groups that have developed, um, over time and help them connect to the labor market? And that, um, that's a whole set of questions, right? There's, um, there's a lot of questions there related to who should be who should be leading this sort of initiative. You know, can you seed effective entrepreneurs that can then generate you know group returns? How do you actually connect these groups effectively to markets? Which I think is like the big one of the big questions that the government's kind of grappling with. You know, women can produce incense sticks, but if they don't know how to get them, you know, sell them somewhere, then what do they do with that? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are two buckets. And the third bucket, I think there's you know, there's this question of what happens to women before they get married. And I've done some research and I think actually it's part of the research I'm most passionate about. Um, I don't have any active field work going on about it right now, but I've worked with government um, skilling programs and looked at, you know, all the different constraints to women joining these skilling programs. And these are typically unmarried women. And so they really do have like a window of opportunity. Um, and I think related to this, I guess there is a dream research question um, here that's been, uh, you know, I'd love to work on at some point, which is trying to understand, you know, the government recruits all these women into skilling programs. They go on to jobs, maybe at garment factories or, or you know, low wage work. A lot of times they only work for like six to 12 months and then they get called home mm-hmm. and they get married after that. They come from these rural areas. And I think one question, and this is one we've batted around that with a colleague of mine at Princeton, or sorry, not Princeton, Stanford, and then um, the former head of NRLM, she's just been transferred, but I think one of the government or one of the questions that's important to the government too is, okay, we've invested all this in, in these skilling programs and so on. Even if women go and they leave these programs later on, has that changed, um, you know, their trajectory in any way? Does the fact that they went, they migrated out, they lived on their own for a while, they had this experience of autonomy that they never would have had had they not joined these programs, um, you know, what does that does that matter for their lives later on? Does this mean that they make different investments? Do they actually go on and work more later in life? Do they have greater bargaining power in their household? Or do they marry a different person? You know, all these types of questions, and we don't really understand that. So um, that's one thing I think would be interesting to understand, but more broadly, you know, understanding how to help connect these young women with that window of opportunity. They're kind of sitting around, they finish school, they don't have economic opportunities locally, um, you know, and they're not yet talking about getting married. It seems like that's the time to connect women to the labor force um, and they're ready for it. But how do you actually do that, you know, on a large scale? I think it's a good question.
1: Mm-hmm. that definitely sounds interesting and I mean I am looking forward to talking with you more about this and the rest of the team as well I hope um, we can um, do some of this and flesh this out a little bit more um, with yeah. our, our team as well for sure yeah agree. Um, <laughs> Uh just as a conclusionary sort of question um, what What um, advice would you have for young researchers who are trying to sort of get involved in um, the gender econ policy space today? Um, And are there any um, book or paper recommendations that you have for um, young women or just young people in general who might be interested in getting involved in this kind of research?
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess advice. (laughs) I get lots of these emails and I'm I'm probably not great at responding to them, but reach out to people that you, um, think are doing interesting work and try to get connected. Right. I I know like when I first got started and again, this probably says a lot about, you know, my background, just like lack of exposure. I applied to like over a hundred internships to, and then finally got one that I was like, Oh, this is great. And that was really my way in. But if you don't, if you aren't willing to do that sort of work, uh, you know, you won't make the connections and, and get started. So I'd say find people that you really admire their work. Um, and, but the questions they ask and how they go about asking it, you know, and, and so that hold kind of similar values to you in some ways as well, in terms of the type of researcher you want to be. And then, you know, try to connect with them or understand, uh, you know, ways that you can t- connect with their teams or whatnot, so that you can get involved and just get exposure. So I think that's always like the first step. Um, And then I think you said um, papers and recommendations and so on. I'll just throw out a few from, I think, some great female economists with some interesting work. Abby Adams, and uh, she has a co-author, Allison, whose last name is uh, escaping me, have a really interesting paper related to uh, the marriage market in Rajasthan. Um, and it's, it's just a really nice use of kind of different types of vignettes to try to understand you know, the trade-offs that households are facing. Um, and I thought it was a, a really interesting way to go about asking that question. Another person that I think has done some interesting work is, uh, and she's not the only one doing this. I just happened to know her, and think she's um, great from what I've seen and the research I've seen from her is Rosella Calvi. She's working on issues related to intra-household poverty. I don't know how much she's doing on this right now, Um, but, you know, looking at the fact that uh, household poverty measures tend to obscure the fact that there are poor people living in non-poor households, Mm -hmm. and this is relevant, you know, when you start thinking about gender. And so I think this is, like, this is a great example of how, um, you know, more detailed data can help us really understand gender focused issues or gender related issues um, in a much better way. So it's exciting to see some of the work that's coming out, not just from her, but from others um, kind of on that front. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I think those would be two I'd recommend.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Thank you so much, for joining me today. Uh, And I hope you have a
0: good rest of the week. Thank you. That brings us to the end of our episode. Before we end, we would like to ask our listeners if they have faced bureaucratic hurdles like red tapism during fieldwork and how they dealt with it. You can find the links to all the papers, books, and articles mentioned in the show notes. Our episodes will be available on Apple, Spotify, and other podcast mediums. Make sure to follow us on Twitter to get more updates on the next episode. Our Twitter handle is at Paul. Tell us what you thought about the show by writing to us at womeninpolicyecon@gmail.com. gmail.com. See you in the next episode.